quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I've always been fascinated by Natalie Juresco. From the first time I read of her, uh, a woman born and raised in Chicago who wound up as finance minister of Ukraine at a time of great crisis for that nation. Ms. Juresco came by the Institute of Politics the other day, and I got a chance to ask her about Ukraine today the tense struggle with Russia, and what the election of Donald Trump as America's president may mean for that region. Natalie Juresco, welcome. Welcome home to to Chicago. So the obvious question, but I'm not going to ask it yet, is how does... How does a a gal from Chicago become finance minister of Ukraine? Just in case there are people listening who are young women in Chicago and aspire to be finance minister of Ukraine. But tell me about your tell me how you got to Chicago or how your family got to Chicago. So both of my parents uh, are from Ukraine and both of them fled in different ways um, during World War II. My father was from the Soviet part of Ukraine, and fled from Stalinist Soviet Union, ended up in a displaced persons camp in Germany. My mom um, actually was born in Germany because her mom was an Astarbeiter, or a, a, a Ukrainian who was taken to work by the Nazis, and my grandmother gave birth to my mom in Germany. But also they ended up in these displaced persons camp, and they were blessed um, from the displaced persons camps to be able to emigrate to the United States of America. Um, there were many cases where people like that were sent back to the Soviet Union, but the Americans never did that. The Americans let them have a life. And so um, they met here in the United States, in the Chicago area. And um, we lived in the western suburbs. But we were raised, you know, there are different kinds of diaspora. We were raised because my father came out of the Soviet part of um, the former Soviet Union. He didn't ever expect it to end. So what he wanted was for his children to be the best possible American citizens, to have the best possible education and integrate into the United States of America. He was so, so thrilled to be in the United States, so grateful. My father ended up serving in the U.S. military in the Korean War. Um, and so we were raised being very American, but at the same time with you know all of the Ukrainian heritage because my grandparents didn't speak English. They were here. We went to Ukrainian school here in the city on Saturdays and had the church, and we're raised in the, steeped in the history and the culture. You know, uh, this is something we have in common because my father was from Ukraine and uh, fled a, a generation earlier. One of my favorite cities in all of Ukraine, Khotin. Exactly, it is gorgeous. I when I we met uh, last year when I was there for a conference, and I really wanted to get to my dad's hometown, and I still do, uh, everybody tells me that it's, it's quite a place. It's extraordinary. It's on the, on the banks of the river, and there's a huge fortress built, 
I don't remember whether it's 16th or even earlier century. It's, it's absolutely stunning. It will be a really emotional thing for me to go back there. He left under difficult circumstances. You know, his home was blown up. You know, the environment was terrible yes. uh, then for a Jewish family. Uh, but um, that's a part of his life I don't know a lot about, and I, I'm eager to go back. But I will tell you this, apropos to your point, about your dad, um, it always made me uh, proud when I was overseas with the president, when I worked for President Obama, to hear the national anthem played on foreign soil. But I went with him to Moscow in uh, in uh, 2009, and uh, I found it particularly moving. It happened to be the eve of what would have been my father's 99th birthday. And it all came rushing back to me that my family left uh, uh, Eastern Europe uh, under those circumstances and I came back as the senior advisor to the President of the United States who happened to be an African American and it made me even prouder uh, uh, of of our country it's a I think about that all the time so it is it's, it's natural and it, it makes you to some extent believe even more so in the American dream the American miracle the American mission but in my case I was able to take it and apply it Overseas in the land of my ancestors. Yeah, I'm interested in that. You, uh, so you you went to school here at DePaul. I did, um, and my father was very practical, so he insisted I study a profession, accounting. On the side, I studied political science, and he didn't notice. As long as I kept bringing good grades home, he didn't notice. Uh-huh. I had some fabulous professors of political science who encouraged me um, to do what I where my what my passion was. And did um, you know then that? You you wanted to return to no, Ukraine. It was I mean, Soviet, you you actually graduated uh, just about when the wall fell. Yes, but I still didn't believe the Soviet Union would collapse. And I applied to law schools, um, and then I got this letter inviting me to apply for a dual program at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, along with the law school. And I thought, you know, that's really, really fabulous idea. And so I went to the Kennedy School. Ended up not going to law school. Uh, and then um, from there on to the State Department. Uh, my professor was Richard Haas, which was why last night was so funny uh, when he spoke here at the Council on Global here Relations. Here in Chicago, mm-hmm. yes. Richard Haas, who was the National Security Advisor uh, for uh, for President Bush. Yes. The first President Bush. Um, uh, he was your – oh, he was – you were his student at the Kennedy School. At the School. Kennedy School. Had, did you keep up with him over the years? Uh, on and off. Um, certainly when he was in the White House, I didn't have much contact with him. Um, but later, yes, and, and now m- even much more so. I was interested to read that your uh, your thesis in graduate school was on international trade policy. You must be watching this transition. Uh, there are many reasons for you to be watching this transition in America closely. But in the last few days as we speak, uh, there's been a, a sea change in American policy relative to to trade. So, uh, how how did you process that as someone who who's written and studied? I, I think it's a terrible trade. shame. I mean, I think the United States, almost of any country in the world, has benefited from open trade, from 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 global trade, and I think it's a it's a real shame that protectionism is becoming the name of the game, um, both here and, and and abroad. I think it's uh, it's a big mistake. I think 
what people are blaming trade agreements, um, people are blaming global trade for what really is, you know, a change in technology and a yeah. change in the types of jobs that are going to be available. And we ought to be looking at, you know, how to educate people for the next generation into the new generation of jobs rather than closing off um, from the innovation, the technology, the trade, the, the opportunities. And so I think it's, um, it, it appears simple, and I know it's very sellable, both here and abroad. Um, but, you know, I also live in a country that had a revolution in order to sign a European Union deep and comprehensive free trade agreement. Free trade with the European Union is not membership, but free trade gives you such an opening and such a relationship. And so for me, free trade is uh, very, very important. It's a disappointment. A lot of focus has been placed on the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, but there was also a transatlantic partnership that was uh, under negotiation, has been under negotiation, presumably also will, uh, will not move forward now. What does that mean uh, for, for Europe? Well, I think uh, right now Europe has so many challenges that I'm not sure that the trade agreement will be the first. It'll be a disappointment, I think, for Europeans generally. But I think uh, Brussels is uh, very, very uh, engaged in a couple things. Number one, what Brexit will be, what right. it won't be, what it will cost and whom it will cost. Uh, two, uh, the the far right and the populist um, unfortunate uh, candidates in many of the upcoming elections and what that means uh, to the future of the EU. And then lastly, but obviously not least, is the refugee problem, which, you know, is uh, not new. It's not based solely on Syria, um, but, but it's it getting worse. Yeah, and clearly exacerbated. By there's reason Syria. to believe it might get worse now with what's happening in Libya. So, I want to get to those issues. I don't want to lose the, the, the thread of, of uh, your narrative here. Uh, so when you left the Kennedy School, you went to the State Department. I did. And there was something called the Office of Soviet Union Affairs. And because Gorbachev had just announced Perestroika and Glasnost, we started an economic relationship with the Soviet Union uh, for the first time. We always had a human rights where we were fighting for dissidents and we were fighting for the Jewish rights and for Jewish immigration. We always had a nuclear power uh, discussion with the Soviets, um, but we we had some cultural, but we never had an economic relationship. So when I got went into the State Department, it was this new office led by John Herbst, um, now Ambassador Herbst, um, who's at the uh, Atlantic Council, and he, um, you know, he was putting together the first tax treaties with the Soviet Union. We were developing the first bilateral investment treaties. We were having customs exchanges to try and build some type of mutual understanding in areas where we could. And um, that was extraordinary. It was uh, under the Bush Senior yeah. uh, administration. Then I moved to be an advisor on uh, the region to the Economics Bureau from there. And my boss's boss was Bob Zellick at the time. He was undersecretary. Now, were you traveling back and forth? Did you spend time in Eastern Europe? Did you go back to Ukraine at this point? Well, interestingly enough, the um, I, I did travel. But it was typically Moscow. And um, you can imagine why, but Kazakhstan, um, because we were interested in developing relationships with our oil companies in Kazakhstan, even back then. Uh, Jim Baker could see it, um, what the potential was. Uh, we, we traveled a lot to Kyrgyzstan because there was a leader there, Mr. Akayev, who impressed the United States with his, his democratic uh, philosophy. Uh, but we had no relationship with Ukraine. And for the most part, Ukraine was a closed, because of its role in the military, it was closed to foreigners for the most part. And so I had never been there. No, during that entire time, I never set, set foot in Ukraine. 
Um, I had one trip um, at the very end uh, where I was blessed to go to Yalta, to Crimea. And raised as Ukrainian, I always believed Crimea was part of Ukraine, uh, as I believe it is today. And uh, that was the only time I had been in Ukraine before I was assigned to the embassy there. What were your – you were in the State Department uh, when the – actually in the State Department when the wall fell. Is that right? 89. Just after, around at yeah. that time. You, you joined just about yeah. that yeah. that time. Um, what were your feelings having grown up in your household and with with uh, parents who were driven out? Um, you know, when the wall came down in Germany and in Eastern Europe, it was hopeful. But, you know, I, again, I was raised thinking that would, the Soviet Union would never fall apart, that it was just such an evil empire and that the security was just so tight that perhaps they'd give up East Germany, perhaps they'd give up... Uh, Poland or Romania or Bulgaria or Czech Republic, but never, never the, the boundaries of the Soviet Union. And so, when that happened in ni- at the end of 1991, that was an extraordinary feeling. Um, and you know, as a public policy wonk, um, it was also interesting to watch how the Bush administration dealt with that because you know there was a speech that the president, for, uh, senior Bush, gave in Kiev, kind of trying to tell people to calm their nationalist. Uh, their nationalist proclivities, because he was afraid, as many were, that having multiple countries to deal with would be more complicated than having one um, mm-hmm. one central power to deal with. And um, the end of the Soviet Union came peacefully in Ukraine, not a single shed of blood, not a single um, person harmed. And so it was an extraordinary positive moment. What, uh, your dad was alive at that time. Yes, yes. What were your conversations like? He was very cynical, so he wasn't certain that anything would change. Um, and uh, my father wanted me, you know, I was already kind of going against my father's wishes um, going into public service. Um, I thought he had an accountant, huh? Yeah, accountant or lawyer, but, you know, um, government, um, you know, for my dad, big government, government was a bad thing coming out of the Soviet Union. So he didn't really like that I was focused on these issues. It's interesting because he, your dad... Uh, was educated under the GI Bill. Yes. Uh, so he 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 had served in the in the he was in the service during uh, during the uh, Korean, Korean War, War. Uh, and he got a degree here in Chicago, uh, but he didn't associate that with government. No, I mean there were always good things about him, but you know he was a, a Reaganite in essence. You know, the less the better. Um, and, uh, you know, I came out of graduate school with a lot of debt and took a very low salary as a GS, I don't know, seven or something. So he was disappointed. Um, but, uh, over time he understood that it was what, it really was my passion. And when I had the opportunity to go to the embassy, I was a civil servant. I was not a foreign service officer. So Bob Zellick was able to break the rules because we opened all these embassies simultaneously and we didn't have enough language qualified people. People could speak Uzbek, Tajik, Turkmen, Kazakh, Russian, um, to go to staff all these embassies. And so here I was, a Ukrainian speaker, an economist, State Department civil servant, so he sent me out there. Yeah. Um, my dad was shocked that I went back. You know, he, he kept saying, you know, we left. And I, I can imagine, you know, your family would have a similar perspective. You know, we left there. We had freedom. What are you going back for? And um, I said, you know, to help them get that kind of freedom. I feel a, I feel a, sense, of, a sense of duty. Did he ever grasp that? He did. He came to visit me once before he passed away, and he and he understood. He understood. And um, my mom comes all the time, so she understands. <laughs> uh huh. 
And you, but and you never really went back. No. So after three years, um, and it was the Clinton administration, I looked to see what kind of positions I might be able to get in Washington. I was very interested in serving uh, the National Security Council at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, that didn't happen, and I thought going back to sit in uh, four walls wasn't really going to be what, what was good for me. I wanted to continue to make change there. And diplomacy had a limiting time frame of effectivity. Ukrainian government officials learned to talk the talk. You'd talk about freedom, privatization, markets, and they'd nod their heads and they'd agree with you. And things weren't changing fast enough. And I maybe am an impatient Chicagoan. And so then... Some would say that's an oxymoron. (laughs) Then President Clinton created these enterprise funds um, on the basis of what... George Bush Sr. had done in Eastern Europe when the wall came down, to put money behind small and medium-sized business. And it goes back to my belief in kind of the American dream. If you can create enough jobs in small and medium-sized business, you can ensure democracy. If all you have are, you know, extraordinarily poor and a very thin upper class of oligarchs, you know, democracy is going to be at risk every day. And so this $150 million fund, U.S. taxpayer money, gave me an opportunity to walk the walk and actually try and show that you can do legal business, you can pay your taxes, you can be a good corporate citizen, you can employ people, you can be corporately social responsible in a town, and you can make a change and be profitable. Um, And we did that. We did that for uh, 10, 11 years. And you, but you weren't in the government for 10 10 or 11 years. No, that was already as a private citizen managing this fund. Yeah. You know, this uh, point you raise about... um, the need for there to be um, viable pathways uh, of opportunity for people and people need to feel like they can get ahead for democracy to be viable. It sort of it sort of relates back to this discussion we had earlier about what's going on in Europe, what's going on here and uh, around the world because we have these revolutionary changes in our economy uh, wrought by technology as much as anything else. But a lot of folks don't, here in this country, a lot of folks don't feel that that American dream that we grew up with is viable because there are people who are doing fantastically well and many, many people who are pedaling as fast as they can and their jobs may, you know, have been automated or and it's driven wages down and so on. Um, uh, this is a... This is a challenge everywhere for yes, econ- a, for it, developed economies. Global challenge, and it, it's it's a major challenge for emerging markets as well, because you 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 fall farther and farther behind um, if you don't recognize the need to educate and the need for re-education, basically, of categories of individuals who can't be employed anymore in their traditional employment. And so in the United States and in developed countries, you have the means in terms of budgetary um, to try and do that, to try and provide continuing education to people. But I think in emerging markets, you're, you're still stuck uh, often you know, farther behind just trying to catch up with what happened yesterday in developed markets when we all have to be thinking how this quote-unquote fourth industrial revolution needs to take us you know, to, an, to another completely new place. I think that um, you know, when, when you think about just the very basic I think this, this is correct. You know, the largest single category of employment in the United States is truck drivers. Yes, yeah, we have this discussion often. And yeah. you know, what's going to happen when driverless, driverless trucks, trucks come online? Yeah, and so you you have this discussion in Scandinavia. You have it in Switzerland about you know perhaps some kind of 
payment, uh, national payment, you know, I don't want to call it welfare because it's no, but not the welfare, problem, but a, but the a problem with that for is, a category that won't be re-educated. Yeah, but the, the, the temporarily, pro- you know, I think that uh, there are two aspects to, and you had a, a shining example in your folks, uh, but there are two aspects to work, and one is the paycheck. The other is the dignity that comes with, you Absolutely. know, being productive and being Absolutely. a productive part of society, and so on. So. You know, it may be necessary in some way to guarantee incomes, uh, but it, 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 if it's not accompanied by work, real productive work, um, then you have a crisis of the soul uh, that goes along with that. So I agree. I just, I just fear that it makes it sound like we ought to, quote, unquote, bring the jobs back. And so I just don't believe we're going to be able to bring jobs back. Yeah, I mean, the, the question so is where are the jobs in the future? category yeah. of jobs, and whether that category of unemployed, we take the next category of open positions is a question. The other implication of what you were talking about was um, sort of the need for uh, democratic institutions. And uh, you've been about the business of trying to uh, build up civic institutions, democratic institutions uh, in your country. How challenging has that been? Because, you know, frankly, one of the issues that recurring issues, and you hear it, and I heard it when I was at that conference in the fall, is the issue of corruption. Sure. Uh, Well, I've always had the benefit for 25 years when people would ask me about corruption. I'd say, do you want to talk about Chicago or do you want to talk about (laughs) Ukraine? Corruption is not new and it's not unique to Ukraine. It's in the human nature. What makes corruption manageable in the United States or in other countries is a system of rule of law that works I don't know, 90% of the time, 95% of the time. So, yeah, you'll always have a category of individuals who, on the, on the margin, wants to take a risk, thinks that they'll outsmart the system or the system won't find out. But the general average citizen basically doesn't want to get caught. There is enough of a fear. If you evade paying your taxes in the United States, you fear the IRS, frankly speaking. You get an envelope in the mail, you're not happy. Um, and so what Ukraine has to do and where, where we are today is we've done a lot in terms of, you know, eliminating specific corruption in our gas trade. We've gotten rid of, you know, all the traders in, in between the purchaser and the, and the seller for years stealing billions of dollars. So individual interests were eliminated over the last three years. We created transparency to make it less possible. So e-procurement across all public government uh organizations. You know, it's harder to be corrupt when it's transparent and all of civil society is watching. Um, then we created new institutions. So a, a new prosecutor, anti-corruption prosecutor, a new national anti-corruption bureau, new paid Western salaries, well-trained. Uh, but the bottom line is all of this requires not just the political will, but you need to have a court that when the prosecutor does his job and brings a case forward, the court cannot be bribed and the court cannot be influenced. The court, you know, again, 90-whatever percent of the time will do the right thing according to the law. And that's where we still haven't completed the process. We began in October a major constitutional judicial reform, but it's going to take three or four years. And in the interim, you know, it's, it's all up to political will. And fighting corruption with political will only is, is very, very hard. So courts are the final institution, and probably if I had to you know, start a country myself, um, the lesson learned is courts should be first. Mm-hmm. Rule of law needs to be first. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with Natalie Juresco.
You obviously have been witness to a great deal of turmoil in Ukraine uh, over the past uh, 15 years or more uh, as this battle between the old and the new clashed and and as the country struggled to um, develop its democratic uh, institutions. Uh, Talk about that and uh, the Orange Revolution and... uh, and now the Maidan in 2014, 15, uh, mm-hmm. 13, 14. Yes. I think you have something in Ukrainian society that's unique. You have a, an incredible desire for freedom and an incredible um, desire for sovereignty and self-rule. And um, when the political system resulted in presidents who enabled a kind of monopolization of both the economy but also political power. An oligarchy, essentially. Um, it's even more than an oligarchy because it's, it's vested interests. You know, an oligarchy makes you think that there's like five or seven of them, but it's, you know, hundreds of vested interests. And when that monopolization goes too far, civil society reacts. And the Orange Revolution was the first time because you had this stolen election with our presidential candidate, President Yushchenko, poisoned. Um, it was very, very very visible to everyone. And this was before the technology, you know, this was before a lot of the Twitter and everything else, 2004. But yet they could see, you know, the, what they call carousel voting, where they would bus people from place to place to multiply, multiply their votes. You could see the, 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 the fraud. And people just refused to accept it. They refused. They didn't have a particular answer to what not to, but they refused until we had new elections. And so the Orange Revolution was about that fraud, that electoral fraud, that monopolization of the political system. And um, after the Orange Revolution, uh, things settled back. A lot was done to kind of increase the identity of the country and strengthen How, the country, what, what, the economy. What, 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 just just mm-hmm. let me pause you for a second that time. What were, you, what were you thinking and feeling at that time? It was exhilarating. You know, Wojciechenko was uh, poisoned. What was you know? His wife went to University of Chicago. Oh, is that right? Yeah, she's a Chicago and a graduate of the, of the university. I had no idea. She is, um, and a good friend. I, you know, we were we were extraordinarily hopeful, but it also created a certain sense of fear because there was belief that you know, to, to somebody willing to poison him, that meant someone really didn't want us to go down this track, um, and so there was a very big fear um, behind who would have poisoned him, why would they have poisoned him. You know what? Uh, what could cause something like that? But I think the the overwhelming uh, feeling was one of excitement. But I think we left it to government officials. Civil society didn't become active enough. I was in the business sector. I'll, I'll include myself in that. Um, we kind of said, "Great, we elected a, a good president. Now he can go take care of things." Um, and the system isn't strong enough. You know, the, de- the democratic institutions aren't strong enough. The political parties aren't strong enough to enable that. We all needed to be there for, to be the check and balance. And what's different about this revolution that just occurred, um, I mean, there are a couple of things that are different. One, it ended up in violence. Uh, people were killed. The heavenly hundred, a hundred people were killed, unarmed people by their own government. Um, but probably the other big positive difference is after this revolution, civil society has remained engaged. They remain demanding, and technology helps. 
um, because you can get information across very quickly. You can film everything. You can drone, put drones over, over businessmen's and government officials' homes. You can follow judges and you know, uh, record them with your iPhone from, from their car and what car they drive and where they go during the day, and that's all public. Um, but civil society has pushed and been the balance um, since this revolution and actually been able to even reverse policy. So civil society has become much stronger in this two, 25 years, that I guess it's two generations, and very demanding but very engaged this time. And so this is a very different uh, post-revolutionary Ukraine. But we're sort of – we should talk about the elephant in the room because uh, the overhang on all of this is Russia – um, and uh, and their role both in uh, the last administration and uh, in uh, the whole dispute over uh, the, uh, whether Ukraine would join the European Union and uh, and then ultimately in the invasion of Crimea and uh, then Eastern and Eastern Ukraine. So I think there are, there are two things happening. I mean, one is what's happening in the region itself. I think the Kremlin could not bear the thought of Ukraine becoming a truly democratic, uh, economic, economically successful rule of law state, because that example right next door in a country that's very close culturally, historically um, to Russia would, would cause questions as to why is the system in Russia so different. Um, one of the most remarkable moments of the revolution was when the parliament adopted what was called Black Thursday, adopted limitations on all of the civil liberties of people. They, you couldn't wear a hat. Um, you couldn't wear a face mask. You couldn't have more than five cars in a row. You couldn't gather in front of homes with more than X numbers of people. And Ukrainians came out the next day and said, that is unacceptable. Now, many of those lacks of freedoms are normal in, in Russia. You know, you have no NGOs in Russia. Or you have no American organizations in Russia. You have a very limited religious freedom in Russia. We have a very, very great religious freedom in Ukraine. And so Ukrainians have already become accustomed to a very different level of set of freedoms, which are diametrically the opposite of what's happened in the Kremlin over the past uh, decade. And so it is, I think, regionally for Putin, unacceptable for Ukraine to succeed. Um, and the EU deep and comprehensive free trade agreement and our association agreement, all of that was putting us on a path to success. Um, I think, though, there's more to it than that. And I think, you know, the United States is now figuring this out um, because of the reported role of the Kremlin in um, pre-election or uh, pre-election Did that surprise here. you, by the way? It surprised me only because I didn't expect that it could be possible in the United States that they would even try. I mean, we live through that every day. The information attacks, the propaganda, the cyber attacks. We had cyber attacks on our electricity systems. We've had cyber attacks on our government. We, we've lived through all the things that, frankly speaking, the Kremlin uses elsewhere. They, they test first in Ukraine. Um, electoral uh, interference. That's what was happening in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, so it's shocking that they would take the risk of doing it in the United States. Um, and and now it appears I've seen reports Germany France and elsewhere. So, um, but I think this is part of the lesson, which is that Ukraine. This is not this is not about Ukraine. For Ukrainians, it's about Ukraine. But this is about the Kremlin wanting to destroy the transatlantic partnership, 
uh, wanting to destroy what we'll call the liberal post-World War II international order, which is based on democracy, human rights, territorial integrity, sovereignty of nations. And if you can create a disrupted system, not an alternative, it's not communism, it's not an alternative ideology, but a disrupted system where we all spend all of our time infighting rather than working together, where alliances start to fail, or where people no longer believe in alliances, um, then you have everyone out for themselves. And when if you have every country being out there for themselves, it's much easier for the Kremlin with its skills and with its funds to uh, to separate all of us. And so... T- from from my perspective, you know, what happened in the United States is an extraordinarily important lesson that this is not, the Kremlin is, is not, it's not only about Ukraine, it's not about Russian language uh, rights or any of the arguments that were given. This is about testing this liberal order. And you, Georgia was the first test. Uh, then it was Crimea. Then it was eastern Ukraine. Uh, you hear a lot of discussion right now that Serbia might be wanting to take a part of Kosovo back on the same basis that Crimea left Ukraine. Um, I think they're testing. They're testing our resolve. They're testing uh, what brought us peace. And, and a, a big part of the reason why is, you know, President Obama perhaps said it in one way that, you know, Russia is a regional uh, power. Russia is a global power from a nuclear power, st- nuclear, nuclear weapon standpoint. There's no question. There's no one that has what they have. Uh, but their economy is smaller than Italy's. And so if you want to be powerful in this world, you have to change what power is and how power is, is seen. So I think this destruction of this liberal order where we judge on economy and on human rights and on, on, uh, on, the, on, the, on the values and principles that we've, we've accepted for 70-some, 80 years uh, is in the Kremlin's interest right now. You have two very consequential elections in Europe. Uh, this year uh, in France and in Germany. What you, what's your sense of those? Because obviously some of the same, very same forces are at play. No question. Um, you know, I, um, I'm very nervous about the French elections because of the role of the far right there and Madame Le Pen. Uh, I don't, you know, it's hard for anyone nowadays to say they don't think she will win because, you know, you, your ability to look at polls and don't look judge. at me. I got this election all wrong. So, <laughs> so, so you don't want to do that. No one wants to say what they yeah. think is possible. But you know that would be very, very harmful. She certainly does not believe in the European Union. Uh, she certainly doesn't believe in uh, the principles uh, and values again that I, that that I hold dear, and I think the United States holds dear, and most most Europeans do. I think uh, Chancellor Merkel is, um, you know, a, a heroine. Um, and holding Europe together right now against all odds, which makes her an even bigger, bigger target. target for uh, yep. for Putin. You know they've uh, you know they've cyber attacked the Bundestag uh, uh, intelligence agencies. They've uh, shut down the chancellor's websites. They've they've used the same means, the same. They've used propaganda with a false article about a, a young girl being raped by some swarthy quote unquote swarthy looking men, spread through their uh, propaganda. And it wasn't even true, um, but it created the political blowback for her for the chancellor's position on migrants. I think there is activity in Libya that we should fear right now, which uh, God forbid, you know, the Russians are helping to try and create a new stream of migrants right before these elections, because, because again, you can you can influence them. So I think I think again, in in my mind, what happened here in these elections, what's happening in Europe. 
And what's happened in Ukraine needs to bring us all together uh, even more closely rather than to uh, be more divided. And I think it, it, it requires everyone to remember what has maintained the peace after centuries and centuries of war in Europe. And this construction, this liberal international order has maintained the peace. The overlay is the economic stuff we talked about before, though, because the the economic the 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 order that has has kept the peace uh, is uh, is viewed with suspicion when it, when the economic elements of the alliance uh, are considered, because a lot of people feel that they've been left out of the progress and are angry about it, and that's been mined by the populist right. And there's no question. I mean, it happens domestically. It happened even when I was minister. You know, if you if you if you can't provide for that group of people a vision of how their lives are going to get better and what policies you're implementing to make their lives better, then the populace run with it. Whether the populace believe in what they're saying or not is a, a wholly different story. They might be standing, you know, behind them might be standing vested interests in oligarchs and things, but. Um, it's a lesson learned from when I was Minister of Finance. We and we were, should point out, because I, I, I've, we, I, we got off on these very weighty issues, and you, you were appointed Finance Minister of Ukraine after the last revolution, 1940, in uh, two, uh, 2014, and, um, and served for, for two years. Um, and we should, you should give us a couple of minutes of uh, history as to how that happened. Oh, boy. Um, I was managing a private equity fund uh, in the region in, based in Kiev, um, about $600 million under management. And uh, the economy was failing. It was collapsing. Um, so since the end of the revolution, when the former president fled to Russia, um, there was the invasion of Crimea. There was a collapse in the fiscal system. There was no money in the budget. Literally, the former regime left something like a couple hundred thousand, the equivalent of a couple hundred thousand dollars in the treasury of a country of 45 million people. Uh, we had a debt, overlo- uh, an overload of debt that was unbearable and coming due. Um, the central bank reserves were almost empty. And, um, the and you said, was this looks interesting, maybe. Uh- <laughs> so when the president called me, um, and asked me to serve, and there were two things. One, remaining in private equity in that economic environment, if someone didn't save the economy, my, I wasn't going to save my business. So there was no reason to ignore the opportunity to try and help. But the other part of it, honestly, was, again, I had lived through, and you know, Americans don't have to live through this because wars are far, but I had lived through this war in eastern Ukraine, and, and I knew men who had gone to the front. I knew men who didn't come back. Um, my children were spending their weekends at rehabilitation hospitals, talking to the, G, to, 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 the to the soldiers that were coming back and trying to raise their spirits, uh, raising money. Had that cupcakes. impact on your kids? It's a huge impact. You can't even imagine. And I grew up, you know, hearing stories of World War II, but it's totally different than knowing people. The guard at your school, the security guard at your school, going off to war, and every day you wonder if he's going to come back or not. Um, being engaged, I mean, there's a good part of it. Again, I said my, my older daughter uh, would go and with a group of young young students and bring pizzas and, and music and, and magazines for the boys in the rehabilitation ho- military hospital. It's a sense of service. It's a sense of um, understanding commitment and understanding um, you know, the, the, the need 
to, to play your role. And when my children said to me, Mom, you know, you'll never be home. Um, you know, you're going to be working all the time. And I said, Honey, I'm still going to come home at the end of the night every day. The boys going off to the front, some of them don't get to come home. They're trying to protect your lives and our lives. They're trying to protect all of Europe right now. The least I can do when called to, to act is to do my best. And my kids understood. And it was a very difficult 16 months because I really did work 24-7. We were in you know, it was just such a financial collapse situation um, and rebuilding a military that didn't exist and fighting the war and fighting the cyber attacks. And if it wasn't one thing, it was another. Um, but we turned it around. And so um, I think you know, the important message is that in that moment of crisis, there was the political will to take very, very difficult decisions. Um, we were able to put a financial support package together with the support of the United States and, and the EU and Germany, uh, $40 billion, and uh, the IMF. Mm -hmm. We restructured the country's debt. We reduced the budget deficit from over 10% of GDP to just 2% of GDP. We did some tax reform. Um, we did an enormous amount of energy sector reform because that was one of the greatest sources of corruption. Um, it was bleeding the country. And so I'm um, very proud that we've we're able to raise, you know, Western funding to buy gas, and now we haven't bought Russian gas for a year, which means that they don't have that political uh, tie yeah, leverage, leverage yeah. over us. So we did a lot on the corruption side that I described to you, um, and we turned the the economy around. It was minus ten percent drop in GDP. It's now you know, one point eight percent growth in GDP. It's not, you know, it's not what you hope for, but it's a start, um, and it's a turnaround. And so I think. It was uh, the experience of a lifetime. I can't imagine what would be more uh, fulfilling than what I did uh, there. I worked very closely with the United States, which was also the, with the Obama administration, with Vice President Biden, and I'm extraordinarily grateful for that support, uh, even if you know a lot of people say they want more. Of course, you always want more support. Um, but um, the United States was critically important post-revolution in getting Ukraine back on track and getting the international um, community behind us. We're going to take a short break, and we will be back with Natalie Juresko. You talk about the critical role the United States played uh, in, uh, in, in uh, helping shore up the finances of Ukraine at a critical uh, at a critical time, one decision that the administration made was uh, on the issue of uh, of uh, le lethal arms, and uh, a decision not to move forward on on that. What was the reaction? What was your reaction to that, and the general reaction uh, to that decision? And what kind of uh, what difference would it have made, or could it have made? Uh, that's one of those areas where I disagreed with the Obama administration's support of Ukraine. I believe that they should have provided us with defensive weapons, uh, with lethal weapons. And I think uh, Ukrainians were very disappointed. I, I have to remind you that you know, the United States was a guarantor of, America, of Ukraine's uh, security and sovereignty and territorial integrity because of a document called the Budapest Memorandum. When Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons voluntarily, uh, several countries sat down and signed this memorandum secure, saying that they would guarantee uh, sovereignty and territorial integrity. Unfortunately, one of those was also the aggressor, which is the Kremlin. Um, but everyone expected the United States to do more to help um, to help us uh, fight the battle. Now, that said, the United States did do a lot. They did a lot in military training. They did a lot in non-lethal uh, uh, weapon support. So I I'm not saying nothing was done. There was a great deal done. Um, we had bipartisan support in Congress, uh, always. Um, 
but I think lethal weapons, defensive weapons, um, would have helped us to put an end to this sooner because I am quite confident that the Kremlin didn't want to have lots of Russian soldiers going home um, in coffins. They didn't want uh, to be losing too many of their boys. Um, and I think it could have brought an end to it sooner. Now, that said, um, the military was rebuilt in the past three years from nothing because it had been decimated completely by the previous regimes. And they have held the line. In fact, we've regained territory that was taken um, over the past two years. And so Ukrainians have shown themselves to be very, very effective, at least at, at holding the line. Uh, and I think now, you know, I talk to people from NATO or the Americans or the Brits or the Canadians that are doing military training, and Ukrainians are now the most uh, experienced in hybrid war, military experienced in hybrid war in the world. And so these trainings are now not just Americans training Ukrainians, but Ukrainians providing a, a great deal of experience and, and knowledge back to the Americans. So, um, again, it was a disappointment. I think I think it would have ended ended this conflict sooner. It's drawn it out. Um, but, you know, I do understand. Do you, the, the reason, you, you understood his reasoning in not doing it? Well, there are two that I th- believe were part of his reasoning. I mean, I wasn't there. But um, one was that he believed it might a- a- accelerate, uh, expand uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, the violence. Um, but, uh, and, and the second being that, you know, the Chancellor Merkel was not in favor of it either, and he wanted to maintain a very strong partnership with Europe on these issues. Another part of the response to the Russian invasion was sanctions. Uh, so that leads us to where we are, which were effective. Uh, effective at, number one, keeping the Kremlin at the negotiation table, and number two, they've had some economic effect. I'm not going to say that, it, you know, certainly oil prices being down have had a bigger effect. But um, there has been some cost, some financial cost. Now we have a new American administration. When I was in, uh, when I was in uh, Ukraine in the fall, um, most of the speakers, Republican and Democrat from the U.S., didn't expect this uh, result. But there was a great deal of anxiety about some of the statements that Donald Trump had made as a candidate uh, and his uh, warm statements about uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, along with a removal of a plank from the Republican uh, uh, platform uh, that was uh, that went to this issue of arming uh, yes. Ukraine and some other elements, left people wondering whether or not he would tilt in favor of. Uh, he he also indicated at one point that he thought Crimea the that crime that was a legitimate uh, move on the part of the Russians to reclaim territory that was actually theirs. Um, what, is the, what is the level of anxiety right now in Ukraine about where the United States stands? I think it's, it's, um, it, it's, it's quite high. Um, I will say that it's been reduced by the confirmation hearings of um, Pompeo, uh, General Mattis, and to some extent, um, Mr. Tillerson. Um, because in each of those cases, it became clear that at least in those three individuals, they saw that Russia was an adversary, in some cases the greatest adversary of the United States right now. Um, in all cases, it appears that they understood uh, the uh, fact that the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine must be re- re- reinstated. 
<clears throat> I think the the statements made during the campaign and, and even to some extent now post-campaign, the, the problem is that we don't know how this is going to translate into policy. And so I think Ukrainians are still waiting to see. They're very, very hopeful that this bipartisan consensus in Congress will will, will be support, continue to support and, and defend Ukraine. You know, we had a visit almost on New Year's Eve, if I remember correctly, from Senators McCain, Graham, and Klochabar. They actually went out to the front and visited with the soldiers um, to show their support. Um, I think... Um, I think everyone has anxiety, but everyone's hoping for the best and that, that the combination of the bipartisan support and the national security team as it fills out, it's hard to say because it hasn't filled out. If you don't have deputy secretaries and you don't, you know, we don't know yet uh, who the full team will be, um, it, it's, it's hard It's hard to put your finger on you it. Also, you also, you, we do know that the um, national security advisor, General Flynn, is also someone who's, uh, who's uh, has a relationship with the Russians uh, and uh, has spoken about improving relationships with the Russians. I assume that uh, that is on the anxiety side of the equation. Yeah, I think it is. Um, I, I think where we have to be careful is I think everyone would like to improve relations with the Russians. I mean, I, mean, I think that statement isn't what causes me any, any anxiety. I, I think the issue is, and maybe Richard Haas said it better yesterday, but, you know, our foreign policy is not about – the goal is not to be friends. The goal is to live in a world where we live by the values and, and, and the uh, the principles that we believe in. And so if Russia leaves uh, eastern Ukraine and returns Crimea, you know we're all for better relations. Uh, France and Germany are today allies, and they were terrible enemies at one time. That's all possible, but it's not possible at the cost of Ukrainian sovereignty. It's not – it's not possible uh, to trade away uh, uh, and, and to agree to, for example, spheres of interest, which the Russians like to talk about. That's not in U.S. interest. Um, the weakening of NATO um, is not in the U.S. interest, from my perspective. And yeah. so talking mm-hmm. about, quote, an obsolete, unquote, NATO. Which uh, is I, something the pre- then-president-elect said yes. not, uh, within the last several weeks. And I think, you know, certainly Ma- Secretary Mattis and others have disagreed. It, it, it you know— it, could NATO be improved? Of course. Uh, are there areas where maybe you should shift focus? Sure. Um, but obsolete? No. Um, that was very striking, actually, to hear General Mattis' testimony. I'm sure folks in Ukraine listened uh, attentively, but he was unyielding in his view of the importance of NATO, of the uh, intentions of Russia, of the, uh, of the uh, violations of international law associated with the invasion uh, of Ukraine. So I think it, it, it just, we're going to have to be patient. We're going to have to continue to remind uh, this administration uh, of why Ukraine is important. Um, and I recognize that this is a more transactional type of foreign policy, potentially, that we're looking at. But even from a transactional point of, point of view, Ukraine is important to the United States. Number one, it is right now securing freedom for Europe. Um, we don't know whether they would go farther. But what we know is that when they got Crimea, they did try to go farther in eastern Ukraine. So, you know, they got a part of Georgia. They then took a part of Ukraine. I mean, there is some pattern here that you would need to fear. And so Ukraine is holding back the aggressor from Europe. And Europe is uh, our greatest trading partner and, our, you know, one of, one of the most important partners we have in the world. I think uh, Ukraine is important as one of the last bastions for U.S. business. Uh, I know that the president is extraordinarily important 
you know, uh, interested in ensuring that American businesses export more. Well, there is no country that is less saturated with American um, products and services and technology. If you look at the agriculture sector, which is booming, and yet, you know, where, you know, what is the role of John Deere, the role of, of, of Caterpillar? Where, where are all of the large uh, U.S. companies? They haven't saturated this market. It's an area for immense upside if Ukraine is successful. Um, and I think there are areas like cyber where uh, Ukraine can be a partner in a global solution. Uh, Ukraine has extraordinarily cyber, cyber and IT skills. And um, I think Ukraine can be a part of the global solution. So I think we need to shift the way the administration looks at it. Um, because if all we say is what we've been able, you know, what, what, what others have said in the past, you know, this is a, 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 a true civil society, a democracy, you know, the human rights of these people, it's, it's not going to be sufficient, I feel, sometimes with this administration to just argue on the principles of, you know, what, uh, what Ukraine stands for. I think we also need to prove to the president it's even more than that. You, uh, you, you must have listened to his inaugural speech. And what, what was your, when he spoke about, uh, America first being the principle. He spoke about other countries having to assume more of a burden for their own defense. Uh, he spoke about keeping the ravages of other countries from coming to our shore. Were you discouraged by that rhetoric? Um, it, it's not encouraging for certain. Um, I think, you know, again, it, it sounded to me more like part of the campaign than it did what I would have expected from an inaugural speech in terms of the unifying effect. Um, you always kind of look towards an inaugural speech to kind of give you a, a fresh a fresh view to the next four, four years and kind of inspire you as an American citizen to kind of make the next attempt to build a greater nation. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not in favor of the, the, the approach of the, the protectionism and, and, and that. But I, I, you know, again, I understand that that's, where his thinking is, and again, I would I would argue for Ukrainians. You know, Ukrainians are spending five percent of their GDP on military um, and defense right now. Ukrainians have played a role in nuclear proliferation at almost no cost to the world. Ukrainians have played incredible roles in UN peacekeeping, in NATO peacekeeping. They were one of uh, the coalition of the willing in Iraq uh, when many refused to to serve alongside the Americans. The Ukrainians, you know, if he wants to those types of categories, if that's the way he's going to be thinking, um, Ukrainians don't fit into the category of not doing their part. They're doing more than their part, and they have for quite some time. I think that's a little noted fact. I think the only time Article 5 of the NATO treaty was actually uh, implemented on the scale that it was was uh, on behalf of the United States after the attack of 9-11. Um, so let me let me ask you this as uh, someone who who's, who grew up here in America and who grew up as the child of immigrants who were drawn here by uh, those values of freedom and democracy and so on. Um, what what is America's role in the world? You were a diplomat for this country before you were a minister in Ukraine. What, what is the what is the importance of America's role in the world? That's extraordinary. You know, the more you live abroad, the more you realize we are the example. And we are the um, the shining light for so many societies. We are, you know, I believe in, to some extent, in this American exceptionalism. And I, and I believe that, um, you know, 
What's been good for the United States has been being a part of a stronger global environment. I think, you know, when the United States leads on climate change, you know, others follow. I think um, it's that there are very few role models for societies that are looking for a role model. And um, that, that, that's why you have immigrants coming from all over the world to this country. And, um, and it's based not on power. It's not based on threat. It's not based on military. You know, it's based on those principles. It's based on that belief in, in being right, in, in fighting for the rights of people, our, 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 our support of human rights globally that makes us that shining light for so many societies that are looking for someone to be protective, to, to, to respect them when their own governments don't. And so for me, it's always been an extraordinarily, you know, one of the central, central countries in the world. And I, I wouldn't like to see us lose that position. It, what what are the uh, what's the cost of America withdrawing? I hate to even conceive of it. I you know, it, especially in this world today, with this many rogue enemies, you know, from North Korea to to you know ISIS and Daesh, and um, I can't I can't even imagine. I mean, it, the, the worst part of that is that the cost will be. The cost will be to the United States and the cost will be to the American people because we benefit from peace in the world and we benefit from the global trade and we benefit from um, from being a part of a, a larger community, whether it's from education or exchanges. I mean, we benefit every day from that openness. And so the cost would be, I think, you know, very, very disruptive globally, very disruptive. Um, I think it would push us into, you know, kind of protectionism in other areas and, 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 and this, this, this pure nationalism and populism arising in other places, God forbid, um, you know, further, further political economic collapse. But, but President Trump is articulating a point of view that is very consistent with uh, what you hear from uh, right-wing populists in France, in Germany, and throughout Europe, is he not? I think he does sometimes, but again, he's surrounded himself with people who don't seem to share that perspective. So perhaps, perhaps it's the the you know the the tone of his his speeches, and maybe there's still time. It's just too early, I think, to, for us for us to understand exactly what's going to happen. Uh, you know, governments change even you know while the president sits. You know, you have your first round of people, you have your second round of people. I'm sure, you know, these these this this group of people will not be there for the full four year term. Um, so we have to see how I think how he deals with the realities of governance, because I think it's 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 very much easy to say things. Um, it's easy to announce things. Uh, it's much harder to, to to do them, and it's much harder to, um, to to govern. And so you know he hasn't had a chance to govern yet. And when he when he has to govern, you know things might might look differently to him. What's in the future for you? You uh, you've had your stint in government. Do you see yourself? In, uh, in government again in the future? I would certainly serve if I had the belief that that service would be of great value and you know, I could really make a change. Uh, right now, I need to uh, get a job. Uh, my, my salary when I was minister was $200 a month. So I've kind of blown through my savings. And I need. That doesn't sound like a good anti corruption plan. <laughs> I agree. That's one of the things that needs to be changed rapidly. <laughs> um, 
So I'm looking for some board positions, advisory positions, companies, organizations that are um, growing in emerging markets, for example. Uh, I have a unique background because I have the accounting and business knowledge. I've served on a dozen or more boards. Um, but I also understand better than most this intersection of business and government uh, and how that works and doesn't work sometimes. So I have a, a daughter at university here in the U.S. and um, got paid tuition, so I'm... I'm looking to continue my public service in Ukraine. I'm still based in Kiev. I'm chairperson of Aspen Institute Kiev. Uh, I'm also associated with the Atlantic Council, and so I continue to do public service, mentor some young people in government there, and I, you know, I, I continue to work uh, on leadership and on. on and do you see yourself to, staying there? I do for now. I do. Mm-hmm. I do as long as I can continue to make a change. It's a it's a weighty time. It's a historic time to be there for sure. It is. Well, thank you, Natalie Jureskos, for, for being here, for sharing your story, for meeting with students at the Institute of Politics. And we wish you the best of luck. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.